the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir, and good afternoon. Welcome. It's Wednesday, 5 after 5 on, uh, you can tell it's getting dark early, isn't it? And uh, so we might be heading home, make sure the headlights are on, and uh, we can reports of sprinkles in the forecast yet. They've been talking about rain off and on today, and uh, there was supposed to be a bit of a storm rolling through here in the Bay Area tonight. Um, yeah, 6 o'clock. So you may be careful on the roads as you're heading home, in case where you're at starts to get a bit rainy. And uh, while you're heading home, we're going to keep you company and talk about some important issues, along with some insights into how to deal with family stress during the holidays. <laughs> yes. As much as we talk about looking forward to this time of the year, it is oftentimes with a sense of fear and trepidation particularly amongst strained familial relationships. Dr. Catherine Athens is going to join us and uh, talk a bit about how to keep the peace during the holidays. But I want to start with a bit of an update. We've been talking off and on about threats to things like Proposition 13 in the state of California. And, and just by way of quick background, a lot of cities are struggling, and we recognize this. We know that there are challenges related to housing and transportation and infrastructure. Uh, sometimes the struggles of financial for a local municipality um, are largely of their own disastrous making. I mean, for example, to put this in perspective, some cities are struggling for ways to increase their revenues by increasing tax flow, which gets to the heart of our conversation in just a moment. Others are just fearful of dealing with the outgo or the expenditure side of the ledger. For example, we've been talking recently about the attempt by Union City to install yet a third recreational marijuana store, and they're really looking toward great windfall of profits because they want to prop up a budget deficit. It's probably created in large part by the challenges of housing and transportation and infrastructure and overpaying. For example, uh, do you know what the groundskeeper for the Union City makes? This will put this on par for you. This is the guy who makes sure the lawns are mowed around City Hall, right? Groundskeeper for Union City pulls down $205,000 a year. That must be quite the lawn to mow. And if you're not shocked at that figure, let me put it in perspective. That our senator representing California to Washington, D.C. makes only 193000 
So explain to me why we think it's okay to pay a United States senator 193 grand, but then insist that the guy that mows the lawns should make $205,000 a year. Maybe cities like Union City need to think more about managing their budgets as opposed to trying to further stuff the coffers with more tax dollars. Tax dollars in one fashion coming from a proposed amendment that would modify Proposition 13 in the form of ACA1. And let's get to the heart of the story. We're joined by Susan Shelley, President of Communications with the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Susan, we appreciate you taking time to give us a bit of an update on this. And I think it's important that that taxpayers across our state are aware that while this might be subtle, the state is simply saying, look, we put together a little proposition here. We make some changes. We're going to simply adjust the threshold, which is currently set at two-thirds of a vote that would allow for any bond measures or additional taxes to be added on in addition to the 1% per annum uh, limit related to um, evaluation of property taxes, reducing that down to a simple 55% majority. But that two-thirds to 55%, essentially 11% difference, uh, that oftentimes is the make-or-break percentage, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. And many of these taxes are paid just by homeowners or just by property owners, and everybody votes on them. So you have a situation where people who rent and feel that they're not going to be paying that tax are perfectly happy to vote to tax the homeowners again and again and again. And that is very uh, eventually corrosive in our society. Well, and then folks say, gee, uh, you know, we're just going to put this all on the backs of homeowners. Uh, Don't forget that those homeowners are oftentimes landlords who look at the rising cost of maintenance and insurance in a state like California and certainly the increased cost in taxes and say, well, you know, cost of business is going up. So guess what? So too is the rent. So at the end of the day, we really all suffer, don't we? Yes, we do. And when businesses pay higher taxes, we pay higher prices. So absolutely, we all suffer. But the main thing is, just as you pointed out, a lot of these cities are not making the best use of their budget dollars. They're giving away too much to unions that have a lot of political power to elect the people who sit across the table from them. And then the taxpayers get the bill every time. And everything that should be a priority from the first dollar is reserved to be put before the voters for a tax increase. They should be paying the fire department and the police and 911 service first and not paying for consultants to look at office space first and then coming to the taxpayers for fire service. That's just that's what's been going on. And I think the taxpayers and the voters are just tired of it. And that's why they are voting no on taxes. And that's why you're seeing this effort to make it easier and easier to pass these tax increases it's because voters have been resistant to it and there's a lot of trickery that's going on and exceptions in the courts that are going on to try and get around the taxpayer protections and to try to con the voters into passing tax increases. And a lot of this, as you you say, Susan, goes right to the heart of of, uh, outright efforts towards manipulating voters because they won't come and say, gee, if we don't pass a tax increase, we won't be able to give a salary increase to the groundskeeper. No, instead they say, well, we might have to shut down a fire station and you know how dangerous that would be in California. So they intentionally manipulate voters rather than facing tough choices of better balancing their 
books or coming into serious discussions about does it really make sense to pay a groundskeeper $12,000 more a year than a United States senator? They don't want to deal with those tough questions. They want the easy way out. And sadly, the easy way out is typically on the backs of you and me and California families. Exactly. But the cost of living is very high in California and people are really hurting. And that's why they're leaving. It's it's not it's not a fantasy to say they're leaving. They're really leaving. Eight hundred thousand plus people left last year and we lost one congressional seat in the last redistricting. So one study said we're on track to lose five more, which means Californians are leaving this state. And it's because of mismanagement by government. It's not because suddenly the weather is bad. It's because of mismanagement by government. So the big question is, in relationship to the status of ACA1, what can and all of us be doing to help stem the tide of this, this additional tax grab? Well, ACA1 is going to be on the November ballot. That's already set. It'll have a proposition number that we don't know yet. And another one that will be on the ballot is ACA 13, which is a dirty trick by the legislature to try to stop taxpayers from protecting themselves with new ballot initiatives. So this is very frustrating. We have the Taxpayer Protection Act that's going to be on the ballot in November 2024. And in order to prevent it from passing, the legislature passed a second constitutional amendment that changes the rules for passing initiatives put on the ballot to protect taxpayers, making it more difficult. And in case that wasn't enough, the governor and the legislature are suing, they're actually suing to have the Taxpayer Protection Act taken off the ballot so that people can't even vote on it. So you get the, you get the picture that voters want lower taxes. They don't want it to be easier to raise taxes. And the people in government will not hear that message. They just insist that they're going to find some way to force people to pay higher taxes. That's not going to end well. No, it's certainly not. And and some of these people are going to find themselves on the receiving end of recalls if they're not careful. Susan, yeah. if folks want to get more information, go a little bit deeper into understanding uh, just really what's afoot here and, and most importantly, how we need to be helping to get the word out and educate voters between now and next November. Where can you send them? Go to hjta.org. That's the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, hjta.org. You'll see information about the Taxpayer Protection Act. You'll see information when we get closer to the election about what's on your March ballot. There's a huge bond measure, which is definitely a big no from us. So we'll, have, we'll keep you up to date. And also the repeal the death tax effort. We're collecting signatures to reverse the tax increase that was hidden inside Prop 19 in 2020 on property passed from parents to children. Everybody should sign that petition. You can download it right from the website at hjta.org. You'll see the red flashing light right at the top. And that's really important because, you know, the ability to pass on a financial legacy is something that, that our grandparents worked towards, our parents worked towards, with the idea that someday the the family home and its ensuing increase in value could be passed on to children that would help make their life a little bit easier, provide for a grandchild's education, give sons and daughters a retirement, and uh, the slide of hand that they use by, well, look over here. We're going to give you tax-based portability. 
on one hand, and then the lion's share of damage done by saying, oh, by the way, when mom and dad die, if you don't abandon your current home, whether you own it, rent it, doesn't matter, you have to abandon your current home and move into mom and dad's place within 12 months of their passing, or you lose their tax basis. You can no longer inherit their tax basis. So if mom and dad bought the house back in 1950-whatever for $12,000, and today it's worth you know, $1,120,000, you thought you were going to be able to keep their tax basis and protect that family financial heritage? Uh-uh. Nope, that all got taken away from us, and we're going to work to put it back. More information again on the web at HJTA. Think Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, HJTA.org. That's HJTA.org. Our thanks to Susan Shelley, President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. I, I want to mention, just before we go to break, I, I've been increasingly kind of worked up on this topic, and we've been trying to educate you. Uh, there is a interesting little site called Transparent California, and it lists the compensation packages by law of every single public employee by agency or by city in the state. If you want to know what your mayor makes, if you want to know what your chief of police makes for any community any government agency in the state of California, transparentcalifornia.com, list them. Boy, isn't that an education. And I'm not saying a workman is not worth his hire. I'm not saying that we don't need to respect our government employees and pay them a livable wage and make sure that they're taken care of. But in the example I cited in my opening remarks before we brought Susan Shelley into the conversation, do you really think that a groundskeeper in a town of 75,000 people should earn more money than a United States senator representing 35 million people to Washington, D.C.? One of the 100 most powerful people in the dominant judicial branch, arguably a judicial a legislative branch in the United States. And we see fit to pay a senator 193 grand and somebody that mows the lawns 205 grand a year. And then we say, well, we got to raise sales taxes. We need more property taxes. We got to sell more pot so we can get more tax revenue because we can't balance our books. Gee, I wonder why. And if you think this only applies to communities like Union City, folks, time to wake up and smell the cocoa. We're being had here in California, and they're trying to have more of what's in our wallets. And we've got to stand up and say, you know what, folks? Enough is enough. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation on yesterday's program. We talked about the importance of of keeping and establishing holiday traditions and um, all the value of gathering friends and family around the home dinner table over Thanksgiving and Christmas. And and while it's a joyous time of year for many, uh, there might be that one relative that just 
gets under your skin every time or maybe just strained relationships. If you travel, for example, back home to mom and dad's for the holidays, you might suddenly feel like that 13-year-old all over again, even though you've got a 13-year-old yourself. You're married with several kids, and yet mom or dad still treats you like a little kid. How do you go about dealing with some of these stresses when family gathers together over the holidays and exacerbated perhaps even more still by the current political mess in the air. Well, we turn to Dr. Catherine Athens for some insights. Dr. Athens has doctorate degrees both in clinical and in health psychology, worked for Stanford University Center for Disease Perfection, and is a certified trauma therapist and has also been a licensed marriage and family therapist for over 25 years. And no, no joking aside, with tongue firmly, however, planted in cheek, Dr. Athens, uh, some folks would think, yeah, after spending time with my family, I need a trauma. I'm a therapist. <laughs> well, God bless you and and every all of your listeners. Uh, in uh, preparation, I'm teaching a class tonight. After our interview, I was going through quotes, famous quotes, and a quote is apropos that um, you let go of revenge, you practice forgiveness, and if something's too outlandish. You ignore it, acknowledge, and go change the subject. So I, I suggest, uh, one, do not get into an argument. Two, it's not that important. Remember you're there because they're family and you love them, and you have to forgive them for being who they are, just like they have to forgive you. So if you can keep that in mind, and understand gathering together uh, before a wonderful family meal, saying a prayer, sharing the food. That's what it's about. It's about sharing and about remembering that love is the most important thing everywhere, in family, in your daily life, and to let go of irritating Uncle Joe or, or Aunt Emma and no, that's just what they can offer. They're being themselves. That's all they can give. So just bless them and let it go. You're and not there for, for years. You're there for an evening or two. And that's a good point to remember that I think sometimes we, we get into those scenarios and we think, you know, we've, every year Uncle Charlie always wins the argument this Time I'm going to, you know, either change his mind or I'm going to come out on top. And we almost treat it as if it's a, a, a contest that it's a live or die uh, if we if we win or lose instead of recognizing the fact that, as you point out, Dr. Athens, we're not there for a lifetime. It's just an evening or a couple of days at the very most. And, and letting go some of those uh, past hurts and disappointments and resentments is a good idea. But l- share some insight, if you would. Some people might say, but Dr. Athens, Craig, you don't understand. I've got this uncle that just knows how to push my buttons. And every year I say, okay, this year I promise I'm not going to raise a question about 
Gee, Uncle Charlie, who are you voting for? I'm not going to raise any questions about what's going on in Washington, D.C. I'm going to stay away from all those topics that I know tend to push buttons and trigger Uncle Charlie. And yet somehow, as much as I try to avoid it, it seems as if Uncle Charlie knows how to push my buttons. How do you deal with somebody like that? Well, first of all, since he knows how to push your buttons, know where your buttons are. (laughs) Okay, first of all, know where your buttons are, and um, I would say demagnetize them and send, you know, send love to Uncle Charlie. I tell my students, send love to people. It really incapacitates them from being rude or argumentative and decide you're not going to reply. There's nothing to win in an argument. It's all about the ego edging God out. That's not why you're there. You're there with your heart and you say, you know, Uncle Charlie, I love you. You never change. You know? And Uncle Charlie will just calm down because you're not participating in that way. And so there's no button to push. And it is incumbent upon the family members who come, the younger people, to understand the older people are who they are, mostly. It's very hard to change. A lot of people don't want to change. And you can't expect the uncles and aunts and cousins to do that. Expect they will be who they are. And again... Uh, don't have a button. Go with a good agenda of, I'm going to spread love. I'm going to talk about how are you feeling. I'm going to talk about the beautiful sky, uh, the autumn as we get into winter, and how magnificent that is. And stay away from all of the TV, news, politics, terrible wars. Stay away from all of that at the dinner table. And and when you meet your family, stay away. There's so many other things to talk about. You have shared some tips uh, on how to make what sometimes turn into difficult conversations a lot easier. If you happen to get cornered and maybe you've purposed in your mind that you're not going to raise the hot button topics, you're going to acknowledge, as the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. So you don't want to engage. But there are five tips that you've shared in how to make hard conversations easier. Can you walk through those five tips with us, Dr. Athens. Uh, sure. Why don't you start with the first one and let me... I will do that. And, and and that's one that I think you kind of touched on uh, earlier in your opening remarks. And that is that, that when we when we get into a conversation or a scenario, you know, reunited with family and all of a sudden that feeling of emotion or anger starts to well up and we we feel it start to kind of bubble up to pause. Yes, to pause to be quiet. I call it the duct tape therapy. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Put, put, a, put a seal on it. <laughs> put a seal on it. It works. I, I have my clients and my students. I said it works. You know the old saying, better to be quiet and have people think you are a fool than open your mouth and leave no doubt. Mm. Good so advice. Take a pause, take a breath, uh, and learn to acknowledge. Acknowledgements are great. Wow, wonderful. 
learn to acknowledge after your relative or friend says something doesn't mean you agree or disagree you're just acknowledging that they exist that's the number one thing people crave is to be acknowledged and and another important step that you talk about and and we've even termed uh, heard this term used to a degree when when police into enter into say a domestic domestic dispute and tempers are flaring and so on and so forth and we all have an inclination to try and want to immediately correct or or um, you know voice some sense of disagreement but you talk about the importance of disarming take us a little deeper uh, the importance of disarming acknowledge and change the subject on something everyone can agree upon you know isn't the grandbaby beautiful let's look let's change our focus to be over here and something that can be agreed upon and that will disarm the need to either be aggressive or defensive there's oftentimes a saying, we've all heard this, that hurting people hurt other people. And this takes us to the third tip of how to make hard conversations easier. And that is that, you know, oftentimes people are, are a little bit on that prickly side because they themselves feel unloved, unwanted, inadequate, whatever it might be. You talk about the importance of being appreciative. Extremely important. When you say, you know... I really appreciate the fact that you went to all the trouble to make these potatoes. They're so delicious. I appreciate the efforts you made, and you accomplished it. You know, I appreciate the fact you want me to come to your home. That's so unheard of. We don't appreciate each other anymore, or we try to be right and, you know, people who are right are always alone, right? <laughs> so try to be appreciative instead. Learn how to appreciate everything. Learn how to appreciate being alive and the fact that we're on Earth and we've been given this great gift of life. So when you're in the house and the chairs say, I really like these chairs. It feels really comfortable gosh, that salad was especially good this year. You know, those things go a long way. Absolutely. My grandmother used to say you're going to attract more flies with honey than you ever will with vinegar. The other point that you make in the five tips to make hard conversations easier, and this seems to be, I think, counterintuitive to our instinct, that we tend to line up. It, it becomes, you know, you're, this one's for the Giants, somebody else is for the Dodgers. I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican. I prefer white meat, the other one likes dark meat. We, we tend to find things that separate us, but you talk about the importance of finding affiliations or similarities yes it's very important to look at how we are similar you know we're mostly similar mostly 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 we have the same number of genes chromosomes you know we come in more or less a similar package we have similar um Desires. We want our children to be happy and healthy. We want our families to be safe and okay. We want to enjoy and entertain and share moments 
we have a sense of humor. And it's really important in the holidays to employ that. And if you don't know what to do, go out and get a Reader's Digest, because they have sections in there with jokes, if you don't have any. And even though they might be a little corny or dated, they're really fun to use and to fill a conversation where everybody can agree, oh, that's funny, or oh, that's corny, or, you know? And they can be wonderfully uh, disarming. And that, that leads us to the, the fifth and final point. And, and this is one where, sadly, we're in a culture today that, that has kind of lost this skill. And that is the capacity to be able to empathize with someone. Well, that requires that we are developed enough inside to have energy to look outside of us and it requires being developed enough to open your heart and to care so empathy is something that we learn hopefully Uh, hopefully parents are still teaching empathy I know I taught my kids empathy because they had tons of stuffed animals And we would go every year to the children's shelter, and I'd say, that child has no stuffed animal. Think about that. What are you going to do? You know, and why don't you give them your favorite one that you can give away right now? And look at the look on their face. So to understand that to have compassion requires to see similarities in others and to see that everyone on earth is working hard and is struggling. We're struggling to be alive, especially today. And that it's hard and people are doing it and people are are having dinners together in spite of everything. And that really helps to center our focus on in many respects as we learn to pause, to disarm, to appreciate, to affiliate, and to empathize with others. And if you employ those tactics, I think you'll find, as our guest today, Dr. Catherine Athens, suggests your holidays far more pleasant and tolerable. Information available on the web about Dr. Athens' work at Catherine Athens. PhD.com. Athens spelled A-T-H-A-N-S. Catherine Athens, PhD.com. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, we're just hitting on all cylinders here tonight. We talk about uh, avoiding those uncomfortable conversations over the Thanksgiving dinner table with uh, maybe Uncle Charlie or whomever it is you might not get along with very well. And we say, well, if you want to play it safe, avoid the hot button topics, sex, politics and religion. Well, we've covered politics and religion. So now we're going to cover sex. <laughs> this way, it, we're fair all across the board. Uh, seriously, it, it's, it's an important issue because let's face it, young people are facing challenges today that previous generations did not have to deal with. Uh, it, it's not just social pressure anymore. It's social media. It's 
this, the images that we've presented in the mainstream advertising world that 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 tend to set up expectations that, quite frankly, um, life oftentimes just simply can't meet. Let's spend some moments talking about expectations, or perhaps more accurately put, by way of my guest tonight, sexpectations. A look at reframing your good and not-so-good stories about God, love, and relationship. This new book will be released come February of next year, and its author joins me, board-certified OBGYN and counselor-therapist coach, Dr. Carol Tanksley. Dr. Tanksley, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, it's great to be with you, Craig. This is uh, this is an interesting topic. It's, it's one oftentimes, particularly for those of us in the church, we don't really know what to do with. I mean, we'll we'll talk about the importance of things like abstinence and abstinence pledges. We set up uh, certain uh, coursework or, or programs within the church to, uh, quote unquote, minister to singles. But at the end of the day, we're, we tend to be fairly awkward about this subject matter. We do, and it's not helping anyone. It's not helping the church at large. It's not helping those unmarried people who are trying to follow Jesus. And it's not helping the culture. It's not helping our witness. If Christians, if the body of Christ cannot talk about some of these really deep heart matters that are affecting every one of us, then who can? We should have the answers because I believe God has the answers. You know, Craig, he created every human being as a sexual being. And that applies whether you're having sex or not. Sometimes we think that sexuality is limited to a certain act, a certain behavior, but it really isn't. It is part of the core the deep places where God made us. And that's not dependent on relationship status. How I bring myself to the world? Well, I think you can tell from my voice and my name, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, obviously. And the way I bring myself to the world is colored by my nature as a woman. And that includes my sexuality. Uh, It doesn't only apply during the years I was married. It applied before I got married. It applies now that I'm a widow after my... Excuse me. That perspective can help all of us really do better with our own hearts and with ministering to others. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it it leads to an important question. I, in my opening remarks, made a reference to peer pressure. But I want to spin that for a moment in in terms of this particular juncture in our conversation in the the notion that oftentimes the church just doesn't know how to manage this topic uh, very well. We either sometimes uh, make it so taboo that young people are afraid to ask the proper questions um, or we go so overboard that we, we, we end up sowing seeds of of confusion there is the notion that yes oftentimes younger people singles will act out of peer pressure but isn't it odd that in the church we never talk about pew pressure (laughs) before people wonder (laughs) did you just invent something new craig let me define what i mean by that gee got a boyfriend now Gosh, any plans to get married soon? Well, you know, I bet you'd make mom and dad really proud with some grandkids, but you got to hurry up and find the right man, the right woman. That sense that sometimes there's this pressure that a single person is somehow 
not fully complete unless they are coupled. And please understand, this is not a speech about, you know, remain as Paul, you know, and, 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 and stay single. I'm not advocating in one direction or another. But I am suggesting, and I'd like to have Dr. Tanksley's input on this, and that is that sometimes our, our sense of well-meaningness as the people in the pews may, I think, oftentimes put pressure on young people and singles today that causes them to feel as if, well, I must be less than... So I've got to hurry up and get married. It may not be the right man. It may not be the right relationship. But, you know, it takes some of the pressure off if I can begin introducing somebody to my boyfriend slash fiance slash husband. Do you think we end up doing that and, and, and in some ways make the situation even worse? I think we do. I'm sure we do. You know, walk into any average Christian church on Sunday morning to to any service and don't look at what is said, but just look around at, at the environment. Who is this church for? Who is the environment created for, the programs created for, and the majority of churches, you would get the impression that this is for couples with kids or people who want to be a couple with kids, you know, all the children's programs. And I also want to say I am not decrying marriage or children. That is a bedrock of society. It's who God uh, it's how God uh, spreads his his kingdom. And so often just the environment of church makes unmarried people feel like I'm a second class citizen or I will only be fully uh, okay once I get married. You know, Jesus was never married. If you had to be married to be a fully alive human, Jesus should have been married. He never was. The apostles. Now, we know Peter was married because he had a mother-in-law, but the others, uh, we don't know. It's almost like their relationship status was, well, in the scheme of, of, of things in the Gospels, it, it wasn't the, the first thing. Uh, I think we can say likely many of them were not. That doesn't lessen the importance of marriage. It just says singleness is just as important. And I think of what Paul was saying in places like 1 Corinthians 7. He seemed... To look at both the married state and the unmarried state as both equally important. In fact, he said, you know, serve God in the state in which you find yourself, married or single. You know, and it's interesting because at the end of the day, I mean, there's there's much that defines us, our cultural background, our family of origin, our education, our job, our relationship with Christ. But I think sometimes, as, as if I'm understanding you correctly, Dr. Tanksley, we, we, we oftentimes will allow our relationship status to define us. You know, well, don't 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 invite Mary to the party because, you know, she and Gus broke up and it's just going to be awkward. Or there's this sense that if 
you're not somehow coupled, you're less than. And so if we allow ourselves to be defined by our relationship status and suddenly the relationship goes sour or maybe you're not ready, ready for a relationship, or you're the type that says, you know what, I'm a young woman, I'm working on my education, my career, I want to do some traveling, and you know what, hurrying up to find a boyfriend that's husband material is just not a priority in my life right now. We shouldn't look at that person and somehow think that they're a freak of nature. Is it dangerous when we allow our relationship status to define us? Yes, because God doesn't define us that way. We idolize marriage when we look at it that way. And there is no nothing worth being an idol except, well, not an idol, but God himself. Nothing else is worthy of our worship. It doesn't mean marriage, again, isn't important, but we can't idolize it. Our relationship status is a factor of how we are living in the world right now. But our identity needs to be as children of God. And that applies whether you're married, previously married, not married, want to be married, don't want to be married. I have heard from so many, more women, because I'm a woman, so I'm, I'm going to hear from more women, uh, unmarried women in the church who feel like this isn't for me. I'm seen as a second-class Christian. I don't believe that's the way God sees it. And I think we in the body of Christ can do so much better in helping unmarried people become whole, whether they are right now wanting to be married or not, whether they are healing from a painful relationship, whether they're struggling with their sexuality as an unmarried person, because we are sexual beings. Uh, regardless, what do you do with that part of you if you're not married? Well, I believe God has answers, but we don't talk about it much except just to say no well many 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 unmarried people don't find that adequate it doesn't mean that having sex is the answer but what do we do with the need in our soul well or just the simple acknowledgement that there's an issue there. I mean, for example, sort of the simplistic uh, approach to the topic uh, that, you know, we will say things like uh, take an abstinence pledge before married, before becoming married, that the union between a man and woman is, is, is a sacred one that is blessed by God and you don't want to defile that through premarital sex. Okay, uh, all of the afore duly noted and acknowledged. But what do you say to a young person who says, you know, I'm a little confused. I am 18, 19, 20 years old. I'm not married. There are no prospects in the immediate future. And yet I have this issue where I have these feelings and I don't know what to do with them. And I get the impression, according to my priest, my rabbi, my pastor, that intimacy or the need for same is a switch that God turns on the minute the pastor or priest says, I now pronounce you man and wife. But biologically, that isn't necessarily the case. So how is it that the church feels someone comfortable to even acknowledge that reality to at least give young people an opportunity to engage in the dialogue to admit that they've got a struggle? And it doesn't only apply to 18 or 20-year-olds. Today and for the last several years, there have been more unmarried adults in this country than married adults. Are they at home in the church so this applies just as much to 28 or 48 or 68-year-olds, whether they've been married 
ever before, or maybe now they're not. Um, I believe one of the key things that we as a body of Christ need to understand and help others understand is the difference between intimacy and sex. Sex is a behavior. It's an important behavior that God designed between a husband and wife in marriage. But the need for intimacy is a need. We cannot live and thrive without that. Jesus needed intimacy. He sought it. He experienced it with his father. And he also sought it and pursued it with a few other people. I think we miss helping people understand that just going to sex to meet that need for intimacy doesn't always work. God intended it to work in marriage, but even when you're not married, you still have that need for intimacy, and it can be met. It may be messy. It may be hard. I'm not talking about taking off your clothes with somebody else if you're not married. I'm talking about the heart-to-heart connection that God created us as humans to both need and desire. And let me, inter- like let me jump in did. and interrupt because I think one of the big failures and it's, you know, the old adage, you know, words matter, even though we don't acknowledge that, that if you if you say to someone marital relations, the, most people, I would think, define that as intimacy, not recognizing that there is a major difference between sexual relations versus intimacy and that you know, a lot of people, they say intimacy, we mean sex or vice versa. What you're talking about is something completely different than physical sexual relations. And that conflation, the mixing of those two ideas of sex and intimacy, I think creates a lot of struggle. The need for intimacy is core to our humanity. The need to see and be seen by someone else. The need to have my heart understood. None of us do this perfectly. And frankly, Craig, that same confusion impacts marriages. There are some people who are married that said, oh, if we're having sex, that means we're intimate. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there are coverings over your mind. Maybe there is no emotional or spiritual understanding in marriage. Well, that's not intimacy. Sex could just be sex. And that is not that does not bring wholeness. Wow. And and is it any wonder that there are relationships that sour after a season, even though one or two of the partners might say, I didn't see it coming. I thought we were getting along fine. You know, our our relations in bed are fine. And then failing to recognize, yes, but you have a, a husband or a wife that is completely unsatisfied in intimacy because there's that, that spiritual connection, that heart connection uh, that is not being fostered or fed. And, and maybe there's one of the big failures of the church, and that is the inability to really understand and teach people about the difference between the I agree. I agree completely. And that is a place where the body of Christ has an answer. Think of all the one another's in the New Testament. A core part of Jesus teaching the way he demonstrated relationships between human beings with those closest to him, what he taught his disciples was this close connection. That's why we call it the family of God. Um, it, it, it wasn't about 
you know, bodies exchanging fluids. This was about the need for heart connection, regardless of whether you have a ring on your finger or not. And the body of Christ can offer that. I believe that that is a key place where ministry to singles needs to happen. The singles ministry at the church is not a place to find a spouse. I mean, okay, maybe, but that is not the reason singles are in church. Singles should not be in church for the purpose of finding a spouse. Singles need to be in the church because they need connection with God, just like married people do. And married people need singles and singles need marrieds. And this should be a place where those heart needs for true intimacy, regardless of relationship status, can be nurtured, even though it's messy, even though it's hard, even though in many ways people feel like, oh, I don't really want to put that effort into it. I I might get hurt. Well, yeah, you might. So did Jesus. But that need in our soul is so core that we will be stunted in our humanness and especially in our spiritual life without pursuing and nurturing that kind of connection with a few other people. And you know what makes me wonder how often this is indicative of the notion that we oftentimes fail in understanding healthy human intimacy on the horizontal plane because there's a lacking of true intimacy on the vertical plane, meaning God is someone that we acknowledge, his name is on our lips, but is he really in our heart? Is there true relationship with him, intimate relationship with him, as we see laid out in Scripture? And if the answer on the vertical plane is no, then where's the model to understand how it ought to live and, and, survive, and survive and thrive and function on the horizontal plane? It's just simply not there. Wow, we've just begun to peel back some layers, and I know some folks are thinking, oh my goodness, Craig, you've turned the latter half of the show of the first hour here into an X-rated conversation. No, not at all. Uh, Just contrary to that, we are saying that these are topics the church needs to deal with, and we need to do a better job at understanding definitions and what all of this means and understanding that sometimes when we, when we try to treat, you know, singles ministry is just, you know, the 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 pastoral version of, uh, I, I don't know, what's what's the big online app? Tinder? Something like that? One, one of those? I, I don't know. I'm just guessing at it. Tinder. Tinder. All right. Mike is confirming Tinder. Hey, you've turned a singles ministry into an, on, into an in-person version of Tinder. You're heading into trouble. This new book by Dr. Carol Tanksley, Sexpectations, Refaming Your Good and Not-So-Good Stories About God, Love, and Relationships. And it, it, the title, by the way, the subtitle is In That Order on Purpose. It's going to be released in February, and we're going to make sure we get Dr. Tanksley on for a full hour because there's so much to unpack here. Uh, that just uh, a lengthy segment is just inadequate in covering. But hopefully we've we've spurned you on to begin thinking and praying and asking some questions and feeling maybe a little bit less bad about yourself and encouraging us in the church, us in the church, to do a much better job in dealing with the subject matter. Sexpectations, reframing your good and not-so-good stories about God, love, and relationships. It will be released by Baker Books come February of next year, and we are looking forward to a deeper and repeat conversation with its author, our guest in this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Carol Tanksley. Dr. Tanksley, thanks so much for the time and the insights. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.